Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies and hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Can you imagine buying a tool in a category where three out of 10 implementations fail, just flat out don't happen? You're as likely to fail implementing this tool as the best baseball players in the world are to get a hit in a major league baseball game. Why would anyone buy that tool? The category of tool that I'm talking about is CPQ, or Configure Price Quote. At hypergrowth companies, a pretty common sign that your company is growing up is when it comes time to purchase and implement one of these tools. Your pricing might be getting more complex, the amount of products you offer is increasing, and that one person on your ops team who just knows everything in their head is no longer the most scalable solution. But here's the thing. CPQ tools, they have a pretty negative reputation amongst both sales teams and ops teams alike. So I wanted to talk to someone to learn why that is and to put together a blueprint for how to approach these tools in a smarter way that has a higher likelihood of success. That's why I sat down with Al Orgil, the co-founder and chief revenue officer at DealHub, a top-rated CPQ platform. Al and his co-founders started DealHub in 2013, and the company recently raised a $20 million Series B. In our conversation, we talk about why CPQ gets such a bad reputation, how to implement and use CPQ the right way, and how AL and his team approach selling and servicing such a complex product. To start though, I wanted to rewind the clock a bit and learn about how AL first got introduced to the CPQ market and how he's seen the product category evolve over time. Well, I'd say before it was even called CPQ and people just talked about configurators, going back to my first job right out of university was at HP, or at the time we called it Hewlett Packard still, to put together our back then Unix systems. We had an internal tool, a configurator that basically allowed you to go through, pick the right products and make sure it went through in a validation, made sure that it was configured properly and all that. So that was the first time that I'd ever been exposed anything that did anything like that in configurators and years later i worked at hp again and they were still using very similar tools and i think other jobs that i'd been at other positions that i'd been at we had built them in excel i think like a lot of organizations did they just went and took their products and the logic and all that and then someone in the company started off with something really simple for a couple lines and then it became more and more and then they started putting macros in it and all the different capabilities in there and built it out into some sort of uh Massive solution, which actually became its own little sales tool in itself that the partners loved because that's why they liked working with you because it was easy to go and do business mm-hmm. with you. So I understood from that the importance of having a good configurator. And then it wasn't really till my partner, we had both in a previous company together and we both left and said to me, hey, I want to have a cup of coffee. I want to explain something to you. And I couldn't believe that it was to put a company together to do a configurator. And it actually took him a couple of <laughs> times to, to take me out till he finally convinced me that, you know, there really could be a company over here. So I'd had some experience with it. I knew what he was talking about right away. I didn't think it was going to be something that you can make a company out of, but I'm glad he actually convinced me to, to go on this journey. That's amazing. So help us connect the dots from those early HP configurators and Excel sheets to where the market sits today. How have you seen the market and the products available for CPQ solutions evolve? Well, in some ways, when you really see that the first generation of CPQs, they weren't much different than people did, I think, back in Excel-type formats. Uh, you basically mm. had a bunch of products, you had some pricing with it, you put a few rules together, what could work together. But 
it sort of depended on the salesperson knowing the products you had to, unless you're going to really write down everything for them and really walk them through the process, which, you know, HP used to create these huge manuals on paper. Every quarter, we'd get another thick document of about an inch thick about each product and how to work through it, but that's not practical for most organizations. So most of the configurators are sort of built around or CPQs built around having a product catalog and maybe it's a price book and maybe some filters that a salesperson can go through, but it really depends on the salesperson having to know the products. They have to know what goes together. And you can put some notes in there saying, hey, don't put this together, don't put this together. And and maybe the more advanced ones will have more validation checks into it. But it was really still very similar. You sort of took it off of what the salesperson needed to know, just help them sort of do it so it could put it into a nice format. And you know, you'll save a little bit of time here, a little bit of time there. But that's really where a lot of the CPQ solutions are sort of built on top of that. And even other solutions today that you know we find they claim to be CPQ, and I'm not here to knock anybody that you know claims to be <laughs> CPQ, other than it doesn't provide what everybody expects out of a CPQ. You can go pick a product, you can go put a price on it, put a discount and all that, but that in itself does not make it CPQ, but it does address what very, you know, a mom and pop shop maybe needs just to put together a product and some pricing. So a lot of CPQ tools really, that's where they originally started at, and some are still really at that point where it's just the salesperson needs to know what they're doing, and then you're sort of guiding them in a bit of a process. Okay, so this context on the early beginnings of the CPQ marketplace is helpful. Product catalogs and price books. Pretty simple, right? But what started as something meant to move sales teams past those thick packets that AL described very quickly can become something very complex. AL told me that this concept of guided selling comes in here. How can these products simplify what could be a price book of a thousand different products to making it easier for reps to find the ones that are relevant to their particular sale. But before we go too much further into the development of the CPQ marketplace, I feel like we need to address the elephant in the room. Most people don't have a good impression of CPQ products, and many salespeople and operators alike don't want anything to do with them. I wanted to ask someone like AL, who lives this every single day, why that is. Oh, geez, we've probably talked for a few hours about that then. I think there's a couple aspects to look at. I think you can look at it from the administration operations side of things, and you can talk about it from the salesperson's perspective as well. On the operations side, it can be a complex project. It doesn't have to be, but where the complexity comes in is a number of ways. Sometimes, as funny as it sounds, organizations don't always know their processes, how things are put together. There's usually one person somewhere in the organization, hopefully, that knows what to do or a couple people, but... You know, people are going to build things. You can ask, you know, five different people sometimes in an organization, how would you quote that? And they tell you something different. Now, in the end, it's got to get to the same product. And what ends up happening is they may quote different products or different options in there. And someone at the end of the process will then go and fix it and make sure that it looks good. And, it, it, you know, it's accepted by the system. That's going to obviously depend on are we selling software, which is simple, or are we selling complex hardware where it's got to plug into some ERP and it's got to make sure we can build the actual system that we put together. So a lot of times the organization just don't know their process well enough. They don't really know how to pass that on to other people to go and do that. It's maybe something new for them to make salespeople able to go and configure these things on their own rather than a product specialist of some sort. So that adds its own complexity into the length of the projects, into how much effort is required into what people need to be brought into it. Now, you'll get some other things that all of a sudden people do a CPQ project and they realize, oh, well, our pricing isn't up to date. Maybe we should go do that first. So all of a sudden it's attached to the CPQs. You know, it's a stigma there. CPQ makes us, you know, do a lot of work, but 
you didn't have your product or your pricing set up properly to start with, or you're just introducing some new products, or there's some processes that nobody thought of, because CPQ is going to come along and say, okay, well, what happens if you exceed this discount or if you put these products together? Well, it's like, well, I don't know. We call Joe and Joe tells us what to do, but you need that in an automated process now. It has to be in the CPQ. So all of a sudden you're bringing in some more things to think about that have to go into that project. It's, you know, we have companies we talk to are putting in CRM systems. That's their whole business process, not even just one. And those projects, you know, can easily take six, nine, 12, even 18 months to go or more for large organizations to put together. So CPQ has sort of taken upon that, been seen like that as something that has to take a long time to put together. And sometimes because the organizations themselves just aren't ready to go and implement it or don't realize everything they have to do. I think on the salesperson side of things, it's not always built with the salesperson in mind. You know, salespeople complain about the CRM and saying, oh, I got to put all this detail in. It doesn't help me. It helps the organization. So it's not a tool for them. And then they'll see CPQ as the same thing there. So there'll be some pushback into putting in another tool that if they don't see the value to it, how is it going to help me sort of thing? So that can also make things more difficult from the sales side of things of getting them to go through that change management and accept CPQ. So, you know, you find those sort of two areas of where CPQ gets a really bad name. And a lot of times, even with the sales, it's once it's gone out, it's like they just realize, hey, this doesn't do what I was promised it's going to do. It doesn't make my life easier. The VP sales is like, great, sales operations has done it again. They gave us a tool, promised us the world, and it doesn't do it. So rip that out. We don't ever want to see CPQ. And we've seen customers, I've got personally into customers that have told me, as soon as I said something about CPQ, they're like, well, we don't mention those three letters in this company, you know, so it's like <laughs> we can. And it was funny because all through my presentation, I've got everything says CPQ, CPQ, CPQ. Right, right. And I get to that and it's like, well, those three letters that I can't mention, you know, is what you would do over here. And it, it just became a really funny session sort of thing. But it's I've been to those where they've just said, no, 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 let's give us a couple of years. It'll, things will calm down. And Anything but we'll try it again. Exactly. Raise your hand if you can relate to AL's point about the companies where they run into a unique situation and the answer is, oh, we'll just call Joe and Joe tells us what to do. The reason why those three letters, CPQ, the reason why they're so scary to some folks is that they really do expose gaps that we have in our own processes, our pricing, our packaging. That's why so many of us have CPQ PTSD. Okay, enough with the negative though. What can we do to make this better? How can we make it so those three letters don't carry such a negative connotation in our organizations? One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Al about this is he has exposure to so many companies who do this well and not so well. How has Al seen operators like us harness the power of solutions like DealHub to make things better for a company's processes and better for their sales organizations as opposed to being victims of them? Well, I think if we go back to our philosophy of where I've been talked about, it, I'll tell you a little bit about our philosophy in, in the CPQ. We came first and foremost and said, this has to be a solution that works for salespeople. If it's not something that the salespeople will adopt, people don't realize this. If you're putting in a new process, a new product into the organization, but the people who are going to use it, if they don't use it, none of the value that you've promised management that you're going to get out of is going to work. You know, So we'll have nice documents, but no one's going to use it. We'll have our pipeline fully updated within the CRM but no one's using it. So whatever's in there is correct, but you're not getting all the information in there. So first and foremost, we said it has to be a solution that's designed for the salespeople. And what better way to make a tool for salespeople and say, look, I'm not gonna make you change anything. Tell me how you work. You come join us in this project. Tell me the process that you go through. What do you ask your questions? And what does a salesperson do? They do a discovery with their customer. 
They ask them questions. They try to learn about them. That's the whole idea. You can't provide a solution until you know what the customer needs, what their pains are, what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what you can do in our process. We call it a playbook where you walk through a questionnaire that the customer themselves, we go to the customers, they build it out with the sales team. Salespeople say, this is what I ask the customer. I need to know you need so many widgets. They have to do this type of work, whatever questions you're, depending on what you're selling into, software, hardware, services. So you ask the relevant questions. And based off of that, then we take the rest of the work away from the salesperson as well. They don't have to go and think about which products need to go together. We don't have to train them to know every single exception and every single permutation of what you can do. Answer those questions. That's what the CPQ is there to do. It's there to put together the right products and the right services and put together the right pricing uh, that needs to go. So the philosophy was to, first of all, think of the salespeople. They need to adopt it. Try to minimize the change management. Once they're using it, we can start to see the value throughout the solution. But we also said from the operations side of things, one of the big challenges as well, maybe we didn't talk about earlier with CPQ projects, is that they tend to be projects that someone's got to come in. You think of them as a software development project and, oh, great, here's another project. we got programmers coming in. If they didn't build the requirements out correctly, we got to go back and do it. Or, you know, okay, we missed this. We'll do a gap. You know, we'll start building. We'll do a gap analysis. What was missing? We'll do that in phase two. We'll do it in phase three. And then these things drag out. And sometimes you never get to that. And you're always doing workarounds for things that are missing within the solution. So that you also want a solution that's easy for the people that maintain it and manage it to go and be able to set it up to make the changes, to respond quickly. Business changes all the time. We have customers that we have for, you know, several years, and if they were to go back, look three, four years into their processes, they're completely different. They may be selling different products, different services, different price points, different ways they do their business. That is natural nowadays. That's the world today. Things are constantly changing in whatever industry that we're in. So that the operations people need to have that ability to go and respond very quickly to the business needs. So the VP sales comes in the next day and says, now we're selling in a different way or different products, and they have to be able to respond quickly, not say, well, okay, give us six months and we'll get the tools caught up to what you're trying to do with the business. So we looked at it from that aspect as well and said, what do you need to do in order to make it possible for them to keep pace with that, keep the system exactly the way business wants it and keep changes coming as they're required. Is there a right balance to find? Because full disclosure, we are a very happy Deal Hub customer at Drift. And I remember in our implementation, this balance between should we try to solve for every possible scenario like that you're describing, or should we solve for some of our most common scenarios and then add additional permutations as time goes on? Is there a right answer to that battle? Because once you start to build out a more complex product book, the combinations can really skyrocket, right? In terms of the number of possible combinations available to you within your organization. And so is there a right way to think about that? The reason there is, it's one of these things that there's a couple answers you can do for it. One of the things I always say to organizations too, or they sometimes find out themselves, they'll say to us, if we've become this complex, maybe there's something that we need to think about because it's not just complex on the front end of the salesperson. There might be a lot of complexity in the back end. And it's often that we'll hear customers saying, well, we know we have to look at our products or our pricing and, and change that a bit because we become too complex. So that's one aspect of it we don't get into. That's the customer decide. We can point out things or say certain things like, look, if you just did it this way, it might work out a little easier. But that is something organizations sort of, they get themselves into a dead end tunnel where they've, for whatever reason, it was the CFO that was there before, the VP sales that we hired two VPs ago, and they decided to do something. We kept going in a certain way. We just built ourselves such complexity that 
you know, it's not helping anybody sort of thing. It, it sounded good at the time. I'm sure it was. And there's probably good reason for some of the things that they did. So from one aspect, that's something that we talk to them about. But I think on a practical level, what I will normally tell customers is I'll say to them, think quick wins. You've got a project you're putting in. This is from a political point of view, but also from an operational point of view. Yeah. You've got a solution you're coming in. First of all, you've gone and convinced management that you need it. Maybe you've done a lot of work on it. You might have had some pushback and all that. You want to be able to show something of value. Now, it's not just to say, hey, check off a box and say, hey, I showed you something. But you want people to start gaining something from it. When you start looking at the whole solution, everything, first of all, your requirement sessions go on for months. You're not even thinking about the solution yet, you're just talking about the requirements for months. And then people are getting tired and then you can't get to the meetings and all that. And that never leaves that stage. And we've had customers had been in other solutions where they couldn't get out of the requirement stage. They came to us and we had the solution implemented in those quick wins quicker than they could even get through the requirements. So you don't want that to get out of hand. You want to be able to take a look at, yes, let's get some quick wins. So one, you're politically getting some good points within the organization. Hey, yeah, there is some value here. You haven't done everything yet, but we can see there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to get something out of this. So quick wins is really important. But definitely also look at what's important, you know, 80-20 rule maybe. Get 80% of what the salespeople need. Get that out there. Get them using it. Sometimes it's just a specific sales team. So 80% of your sales team is doing one thing, the 20%, you know, sometimes you'll find it like the SMBs and then the enterprises. So the enterprises, they're doing all kinds of strange things anyways and that. So let's wait on that. Let's learn the system. Let's see where there's commonality. Maybe we'll come back and we'll see, maybe we can do some changes for their process as well. So learn things as well. Again, our CPQ or others or whatever solution, you go through a learning process of how to better utilize the solution. As much as we as DealHub can come to you and say, here are best practices. Here are the way you, ways you should work. There's things that each organization is different. It has its own dynamics. It has its own life to it. Different people that think differently. They need to see the solution. They need to learn it, learn what capabilities it has, what other things they can do with it. So start working with it. Get those quick wins. Look at it in phases if you need. And these aren't phases that will do it now and then in six months now. It might be a two-month phase you know, for the next step. But Get value while you're doing that, but think, how do I break it down? It also makes it easy sometimes to deploy. We see customers that, remember one of our early customers said to us, well, we're going to deploy it only in the U.S. first, and then we'll go to our international team, and they had a few international teams. And then like about a week before, they're like, well, we decided we're going to go out with everybody one time. And we were like, you know, are, are you sure about this? Now, in the end, they did it. You know, some other stories around that, maybe another time, but it was like, they did it, and it worked out, but it was a scary thing. It's like, you know, take your time. You're learning something new, not because it was just us. I think you should... Really make sure you're making that right decision. We do that. We say it with a lot of customers. They'll go out with a specific team, whether it's a pilot or just a first release, get that out, learn it, tweak it. So you're not changing. Again, one of the things people don't realize is sometimes they're building up the excitement beforehand. So the sales team is really eager to go, whether that was at a kickoff or something else. Or other times, as soon as it goes out, everybody wants to use it. But if you've built up that excitement, all of a sudden you forgot something or didn't quite do everything, try to get back from that poor deployment, you know, that loss that you just created can be horrendous sometimes if at all you can do it. And especially, you know, the people you sold it, the US VP and he, okay, he's stuck with it, but the European guys are going to say, well, forget it. We're not going to go with that. And we saw all the troubles they had in the US sort of thing. So you want to be able to do it in a smart way. I think that change management can be really well handled, but it can also cause a lot of problems if it's not done right. I think it's really important not to discount the political wins that AL mentions here. You may wince a little bit at the word political, but it's the right word. In addition to all the processes and systems work that goes into a CPQ implementation, like any new tool, you're also managing the perception that folks have of this new shiny object that you're introducing. 
rack up those internal wins. That's what's gonna build momentum for the tool itself. It's hard, but you have to win people over one at a time to convince them that the new world with CPQ is gonna be better for them than the world they're in today. I also think it's interesting what AL said about requirements gathering. I can totally see how companies could get stuck in that requirements gathering phase forever and never come out of it, which raises an important question. Who should be doing this type of work? Some companies handle this internally, some hire an outside partner or a consultant. Now, the obvious answer is that, well, it depends. But I asked AL, what are the factors we should all consider when deciding who should do the implementation work for CPQ at our companies? Yeah, there's a number of things that you think about. I think sometimes you're limited in what you can do, first of all. DealHub has taken a different approach where we do the implementations, and, and I'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But it's really important to understand who's doing that implementation, what their experience is. If I take us aside for a second and say, okay, other CPQs are out there, they often work with implementers. You really got to make sure that you have the right implementation partner, that they've done enough of these projects before, that they know what they're doing. They, this, your specific model that they've seen before. It might be that they've done dozens of CPQ projects, but they've never done in your area. So part of that implementation is the best practices that you need to get out there. How do I do things? There's different ways. There's always different ways to do things but what's the best way to do it for you? You need a partner that can understand that and be able to work with you on that. So a lot of projects, and I say probably the majority of CPQ projects, and sometimes you hear industry standards saying as high as 30% of CPQ projects will fail, which is horrendous. That's horrible. Wow. They're failing because not the solution wasn't good. You probably did a good evaluation when you ran through the solution, but doing a POC and doing all the initial things are great and all that. But what happens later on when I need to make it practical? You know, we did a one use case. Now we've got a dozen use cases. How do we make sure that works? Well, the partner is a big part of that. So are they experienced in doing that? It's very key. Now, what we've done at DealHub is we said, we're going to keep the implementation in-house. We're, first of all, very vested in it. Then we're making sure the customer is a success. We can take all of that knowledge that we have from hundreds and literally hundreds of different implementations that we've done. And if you count even just other evaluations that we've done or showing capabilities, you know, we've literally done hundreds of these things so that we can bring that experience to the customer. We can say, okay, other customers in your market, they would work this way or they've done this or this is where it failed. And, and they come to us. And one of the things I find with CPQ as well, Customers are hungry to learn. I'm sitting at a project right now, a very large customer, and they're saying to us, look, this is what we want, but whoever works with us, we want you to come back and just tell us, no, that's not the right way to work. They're looking for that knowledge. They're not experts in CPQ. They're all experts in their area, but they're coming to us and saying, you are our trusted partner now. If we bring you on board, you tell us what you really think. Don't hold back. Tell us if it should be done in a different way. So that's really key. The partner that has that knowledge that's what's going to be a successful project. That's what's going to help the customer look to the future. That's what's going to give them the ability to get the most value out of the solution that they're gaining. So that's why we've taken the decision to do it ourselves. We can make sure that the quality is there. We can make sure that we provide the right tips and best practices to our customers so that they can be. And as they look to the future, we'll be there with them. It's not that they're going to switch a partner. So we'll give them you know, more tips along the way. We provide our customer success as part of the service. You don't pay extra for that. We don't want your money for that. We want your money from being successful with the solution. So we're going to help you along the way. So you come back to us and ask us these questions and, and really work together with you. And, and the people that implement your solution will actually be the ones that will support you so they know your model. So you're not starting from scratch every time. You're not just calling some unknown support line and saying, hey, I've got a problem with this. They know nothing about what you're doing. We want to make sure that we can give them the support they need. And it's a business tool. It's not just a technical tool. You need to understand that business. You need to understand what the customer went through, why they got to their decisions. And if you don't have that 
partnership with them that makes it really difficult to support them in the future as well. Yeah, and I would imagine that's a pretty common blind spot when you have an external partner or somebody, a consultant or something that's been outsourced to do a project like this is they don't have the business context. They don't understand or they have not had the opportunity to know exactly the history behind this strategic pricing decision or this packaging decision or how customers typically bundle those choices together, right? And so absent that business context, I could totally see that being a very common point of failure. I think it's really interesting that you guys have made this investment to help your customers do the implementation and be very much a part of that implementation yourselves. I'm curious how that plays itself out throughout your sales process. You mentioned a little earlier that you go through this playbook writing exercise as part of the sale itself. And so I'm curious, you know, when I talk to companies who sell a more complex product, what their sales process looks like and what types of either choices or investments they make throughout that sales process in order to make that strategic sale or post-sale implementation a little bit more of a reality for folks. And so can you tell me a little bit more about that playbook process and how you all go about helping your customers to envision what this thing is actually going to look like when this very heavy implementation is done? Right. Well, we like to bring into the process what we refer to as a proof of concept or a customized demo. You could think of it as that. Something that we can, the customer come to us and say, this is the way that we work. We'll say to them, why don't you bring us your salesperson's process? What are they asking the customer? How are they engaging with them? What do they go through when they have to configure the product, which the product needs to be configured or get the right options that need to be included with that? And what are the things that they need to think about? And we'll build out this customized demo for them. Usually takes us just a few days to put it together to turn around and show it to them. And then they can envision it with their own eyes and they can see it so that they give us the actual use case and say, look, they need to do this. This is the outcome. First of all, we can prove it to them, but we can also give them the ability to imagine what other capabilities they have with the solution? What are the other alternatives that they can do with it? And they start, all of a sudden you get these wow moments. It's like, oh, can I do that? Can I do this? And we start showing them how it's not just the quote anymore. Maybe the contract needs to be modified. So we'll ask a couple of questions. What do you need in the contract? What are your terms and conditions And this? And we can start putting in some legal terms and all that and have other people helping out in that process. So that we want to show them, I think the proof is in in seeing it for yourself. It's not just come believe me, mm. we can do it. Now you can put all, all the customers you want in the world and all that, but sometimes people have very unique things. And there's one thing I've learned uh, doing this for so many years is that people do some really strange things when it comes to their configure, the way they configure their products, the way they price them. We've got customers that do pricing with equations, like in exponentials. I'm like, I don't even know how you keep track of those things, but that's how they build things out. So We've seen some strange things. You've got to be able to prove it to the customer that they can do it. I think a couple of things. One, to prove it that it can be done. And two, you can prove that it can be done easily and quickly, which shows them, okay, if I didn't think of everything, then it looks like this is something that can help me later on when I do find other situations that I have. I can see that it had that ability to do what I was looking for. So it's really a key part of our sales process is to show the actual solution working in their environment. And what advice do you have for folks who might have a proof of concept or are considering adding a proof of concept into their sales process? Because I could also imagine that there are ways that that could go wrong, right? You could get super bogged down in their requirements. The POC never ends. Like you could have a bunch of deals that don't ever end up winning. What advice do you have to help avoid some of those pitfalls for folks? It's to keep it very focused. In some businesses, you may want to have, you know, you, what are the KPIs we're trying to address? You can put it in that terms, but there has to be a clear cut 
what is it that we're trying to achieve by this proof of concept? Is it just to show you that I can go put those three products together and give you the right price that's generated? You know, can I put the nice document the way that you want it to see? Can we actually do what you, the way you put it out today? Whatever that happens to be, it has to be really clear. And we tell customers, look, we're not here to do your full environment. We're here to show you, give us your, your most complex use case or the one that you get bogged down in the 80% of the time. This is where the problems happen and all that. Be very specific. Sales process go on forever. Otherwise, we're just going to build the solution for them and we're going to take a year to build it because we're going to, to sell it because we're showing them everything <laughs> that they can do with it. So I think once you've talked about the product and once you come across very confidently and say, okay, now give me what you want to see out of this, we can go and show that to them. And occasionally someone wants to see a bit more information and that's fine. It happens, you know, whether it's that's the type of customer they are because there's all kinds or they just need to see more things that they weren't quite sure earlier that that would be important. But it's to really try to keep it focused. But I think the ability that if you have to go and do that proof of concept really easily is important. Even though we're used to the internet world, maybe today with COVID a little more buying things from afar, like a, it's interesting, someone in the office who bought a Tesla and just bought it on the internet and to think, wow, I just looked at the internet. Now, you know Tesla, but any other car that you bought, you've probably gone to the lot, to the car lot and looked at it and you wanted to sit in it and see how it's, you know, so it's that kind of idea that you want to show them as much as you can about it because people still want to be able to touch things as much as we've gone to an internet world. I think you still need to go and prove that things can be done. And so you got to be thinking about that, I think, with any kind of product is how can I go and show it to the customer? Trust me, is not is not a method I like to sell by. It's not something I want someone to believe in what I'm saying. And to your earlier point, it seems like the real output there is your expertise. It's showing and proving that DealHub has the expertise to take you through this project as opposed to you needing to bring your own CPQ expertise to the table. I very much think so. Like you do come into some organizations and people have done CPQ, uh, various different CPQ products, different environments that they were in. But I think you have to bring them that expertise. One is just from a sales point of view. Obviously, you want to be confident. We, you know your product. You know how to go and sell it. But I'll even tell customers, about if we don't have the right solution, which doesn't happen often, if they've come for something strange, I'll tell them, look, this is not what you want. I don't want to be selling something, something they don't want. I want them to understand what they're getting into. I want them to understand that we know what they're getting into and how we can help them. I think, you know, as a salesperson or a sales organization, you're always selling the company and, and the salesperson themselves or the team that we have. It's not just one person. Obviously, we have a lot of people involved in, the, in both the sales process and later on the implementation. You have to show to a customer that you really are going to be their trusted partner and you have the knowledge for what they need. And if you even you don't always have the answer, but they trust that you're the people that can get them out of a jam or you can find the right solution for them and all that, because sometimes you can't get 100 percent of what you're looking for. But you know that someone's going to be there to work with you. So I think it's really important to show the expertise over there. And there is a lot of expertise. I realize it more and more when I bring on new salespeople, how much knowledge we have to give them, even if they've come from the industry. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of little nuances, and you have to help the customer with that. They don't know what they don't know. That's our job to go in there and show it to them, whether it's in the sales process or whether it's later on once the customer success team takes over, is to show them that we're there, we're going to help you. Otherwise, you just end up buying more. I guess not as it's not shelfware because it's on the cloud somewhere, but we used to call shelfware. It's just like it ends up enough solutions don't get used or don't get used to the maximum. And you really want people to get value out of your solution. Before we go, at the end of each episode, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Well, I don't read books. So I don't have time. But I listen to audiobooks. And I think other than some sci-fi stuff that I like, I read uh, Elon Musk's autobiography or biography. I guess it wasn't him that wrote it, but I think it was just the most amazing thing. He's what an incredible guy. <laughs> 
Nice. All right, I usually ask ops folks what their favorite part about working in ops is, so I'll ask you your favorite part about working with ops. Well, I'd say if they've come from the sales side of things, which a lot of ops people have done, that's what I like working with them and talking the same language. So we're not trying to teach each other while we're trying to do it. I like talking to someone that has that understanding of what it is that salespeople want. That's the best thing that I usually like with sales ops people is like, let's just go solve the problem. You understand where I'm coming from. You've been there. You know the pains. Let's go solve it together and not try to create, you know, some monster or start fighting, you know, what, what we want to do. Let's just, you know, work together. So that's usually what I like to have. And I'm lucky right now that I have a sales ops person that's in that position that was in sales before. That's awesome. All right. Flip side, though, least favorite part about working with someone in ops. I think the P word processes. I'm a sales guy. You know, as much as it's needed on the management side, I know it, but it's like, why is this hindering me? Why do I have to have all these extra boxes that I check off? Why do I hit submit on my Salesforce screen? All of a sudden I get a red box somewhere that says you missed this or nowadays on lightning, it gives you even weirder messages that you just don't understand what they want from you. So it's like, you know, that's what I hate. Like, why did you make that mandatory or, or put some trigger behind it or validation behind it that I have no idea how that works. I love that even as a CRO, you're, that's still has stuck with you. You're like, these stupid validation rules oh, yeah, and boxes. Like, uh, that's amazing. I'm in there too. It's not just the sales guys that come to complain. I'm in there too. And it's like, I just don't know what that meant. Someone had a really good idea for it, but it just didn't come across to the sales guys. We don't understand that. So, <laughs> All right. Next one. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today? That's a good question. I think one, I think my, one of my first managers that I had when I started off in sales right at university, I think it was the second manager that I had, even told me some things that I wasn't good at and all that. And I think that really impacted me and how I looked at things later on. It was there obviously in a constructive way to tell me, you know, you know, what he thought, how I should be doing things and all that. And nowadays, I, it's funny, I found myself years, years later looking back at that one specific person and just the way he told me how to look at things, how to put things together. I think that really impacted in how I think of things when I talk to my sales team and when I look at how I'm presenting to a customer, I think that really had a big impact on at least how I operate today. Nice. Last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Well, if you're going to do it through a startup, be ready to work really hard because it's a lot of hours to do it. If you're going to do it somewhere else, there's probably some easier ways to do it. But I think just be really focus, I think, in, in understanding what the customer wants and being able to provide a good solution. It's not just, again, my method of selling. I want to understand the product. I want to understand the customer. And I want to be able to talk to them like we're having a conversation now. It's a conversation with the customer. It's not a sales pitch. It's a discussion with them, learning about them, telling them what's available and working together with them to you know, really be that partner. So that's where I look at it. I think that's the important thing to be successful in the Thanks so much to AL for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you are subscribed so a new episode shows up in your feed every other Friday. We also put clips of the show out on YouTube now, so check us out by searching for Operations and Drift on YouTube. Last but not least, if you got something out of today's show, leave us a review. Tell us what you learned. Leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right. That's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.